0: Well, good morning. So today we're going to start a new series uh, traveling through the book of Colossians, traveling through the New Testament letter of Colossians. If you're using the chair Bible, that's on page 924. We've had several preachers throughout the last four to five weeks, um, and we intend to uh, maintain that structure. Uh, thank you, Dale. Thank you, Dan. Even Stephen did okay. And so, uh, (laughs) no, I I appreciated your message out of 1 Corinthians 13, man. And so, uh, we we intend to maintain that structure, but we're going to bring in a little bit more uh, congruency as each preacher now goes through the book of Colossians uh, right up until Palm Sunday and Easter. So, that is our intention moving forward. Now, before we jump into Colossians, I thought it would maybe be a little beneficial if we connect ourselves with the Colossians and we connect our time with their time and we understand why it matters to us today. So I thought I'd begin with a little story. So in college, I I had a roommate, an old buddy of mine. His name was Seth, not the Seth over here, but a different guy. And he was a total spaz. He was very unpredictable. One day he took the Cheez-Its out of my room. He took them into the hallway and he just punted them down the hallway. Cheez-It dust went everywhere. It, It was just a normal thing to not have a clue what this guy was about to do next. He was very unpredictable. But there was one thing I knew for certain about this guy. And that was that he loved the word new. He loved anything and everything that was new. And so if we went to Walmart and we're going through the checkout line and there's a little pack of gum and on the gum it says N-E-W, well, Seth had to have it. He had to buy it. He loved new things. Nowadays, he'd think, oh, there's orange-flavored Coca-Cola? I have to have it. Oh, there's coffee-flavored Coca-Cola? I have to have it. Why? Because it's new. He might know that he isn't going to like it, he isn't going to enjoy it, but it doesn't matter, it's new, and he has to try it. My roommate was addicted to new. And even though we in this room might not be addicted, we all have a certain tendency to go after new things. And we're drawn to things that are new. And that's what was happening in Colossae as well. There are these new ideas that are coming into the church And they are just buying into them. There are these new Greek philosophies and ideas that are working their way into the church. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly what they are, but just that they're into them. There are these new practices such as asceticism and self-debasement where people would literally cause physical harm to themselves and deprive themselves in order to grow in holiness. There's legalism that is really growing at this time, as Colossians will will tell us, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and this is a new rule that's being put into place. And this really makes sense because Colossae is a church plant that's only about five or six years old at the time of this letter, so they themselves are new. And so the strategy of this letter is to help keep the focus where it should be. So essentially, if I can boil down Colossians into one sentence, it is don't allow new things into the church that devalue the work and person of Jesus Christ, right? New is not altogether bad, but if new devalues the work and person of Jesus Christ, then don't let it into the church because Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. Now here's how Paul works. This is how he writes his letters. First, he greets the church. Then he thanks God for the people of that church. And then he praises God for some noticeable attribute of that church. And then he gets into the gospel. Those are kind of, that's kind of how Paul works. Every letter is this way except for the letter to the church in Galatia. And that's just because he's really mad at them. So he just kind of gets right into it. So we're going to look at his introduction because there are two hidden truths that I want to bring into the light and inside of Paul's introduction, and then we'll get into his prayer that he has, which, is, <clears throat> which contains the gospel. So with that being said, let's dig in. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So normally when you and I write a letter, we tend to sign the very end of the letter. But Paul is different than us. He signs the very beginning of the letter, and he does, the, he does this for a purpose. See, Paul is establishing himself as a credible teacher to learn from, right? So that's the first hidden point in his introduction, that he is a credible teacher. You see, our relationship to Jesus is the most important thing about us. Jesus himself is the most important person to have ever lived in the history of the world, In fact, we divide history according to Jesus. There is B.C., before Christ, and then A.D., Anno Domini, which is year of our Lord. There are more books about Jesus than anyone else. There are more paintings of Jesus than anyone else. There are more songs to Jesus than anyone else in the history of the world because Jesus is the most important person to have ever lived. Now, here's why I bring that up. Who do you trust to learn about the most important person who has ever lived? Now, obviously, we want to learn about Jesus from Jesus. And so we read the red letters. But the Bible contains more than just the red letters. And so Paul says to the church in Colossae that he is a credible teacher, that you can learn from me. He uses the word apostle. Now, according to Mark chapter 3, there seem to be three primary qualifications for an apostle. And so we're going to read that. Mark chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. It'll be on the screen behind me. He said, and he went up on the mountain and called to him, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Notice that he appoints 12. Not all of the disciples become apostles, but specifically 12 of them are given the name apostle. And there seem to be three qualifications for these 12 men, with the first one being that they are with Jesus. So an apostle was with Jesus. The second one is that they were sent by Jesus to preach. And then the third one is that they have been given some kind of special authority. And so an apostle is one who is sent by Jesus to preach and has special authority. Now we already have a bit of a problem because Paul was not one of those 12. But here he is calling himself an apostle and he does that throughout all of his letters. But he's very careful to say that he himself is not laying claim to the name apostle, but instead that Jesus Christ gave him the name. So let's take a little closer look at Paul's life and see if he fits our definition here. Was Paul with Jesus? Jesus. Well, we see in Acts chapter 9, his conversion story, where he was on the road to Damascus, he was knocked off of his horse by a blinding light, and then that light says, I'm Jesus. So he was with Jesus. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that Jesus was revealed to him, okay? So he fits the first one. Galatians then continues and says that Jesus was revealed to Paul in order that Paul might go and preach to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. So he he has been sent to preach. So he fits the second one. And then Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And so Paul carries a certain authority. He writes the commands of the Lord. And so Paul fits the definition of an apostle. He was sent by Jesus to preach with authority. Now, why does that matter? Why do we care if Paul was an apostle? Well, clearly, when we look at the book of Colossians, we see it as Scripture. But is that how they saw it? They just received a letter. It's just a letter written by a guy named Paul. They have plenty of other resources, plenty of other writings from people who are talking about Jesus. Why listen to this guy? Well, because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul knows that who your teacher is matters. Church, do we know that? You see, there are authors, there are speakers, there are teachers, there are professors, and they all have ideas about Jesus, but who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? Because your teacher makes a really big difference. Some people listen to ultra-conservative teachers, and it leads them down the path to the right. Typically, these teachers think, yeah, God made rules. That's a pretty good start. I think I'm going to add some more rules to that. You see, that was the problem in the church in Galatia. They were more conservative than God. They wanted to add the rule of circumcision to faith, and Paul rebukes them harshly. Some people... Listen to ultra-liberal teachers, and it leads them down the path to the left. Typically, these teachers think, don't judge one another, just accept everybody. That's what Jesus would do. And that's what was going on in the church in Corinth. They were getting drunk at communion. They had a guy marry his mom, or maybe he was a stepmom. It's a little unclear, but either way, it's not good. And Paul rebukes them. You see, who you allow to teach you Who you allow to shape your worldview, who you give permission to, to educate you and develop your theology matters. Nobody gets their theology 100% from the Bible alone. Now, some people claim they do, but nobody does that. It's a community effort. And we at First Baptist, we aim to be a church that lives according to the Bible, But in that, implicitly, is that we correctly interpret the Bible. And the only way to correctly interpret the Bible is to do so with one another and with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, I am a worthy teacher. You can submit to me as my student. And so we would do well to evaluate who teaches us. Who are we listening to on the radio? Who is on the news in the morning? What podcast do you download? What books are you reading? It is not insignificant and it is not innocent. Your teacher matters. Paul says, I'm an apostle, I am a good teacher. And that's the first hidden truth. And then the second, he calls the people saints. He calls the faithful brothers in Colossae, saints. Have you ever thought about this title? This title, this name, saint. That is an identity statement. Now, according to the Bible, there are basically just two identities. You're either a sinner or you are a saint. And now Paul is not using this word, as we might understand it today, as an ultra holy category of Christian. He's simply referring to the believer. To be a saint is just to be a Christian. You are a saint. That's who you are. That is your identity. 40 different times in his letters, Paul calls Christians saints. But he never, or, or virtually never, uses the term sinner to describe a saint. Now why, why would he do that? Because it's an identity statement and you live out of your identity. You live out of your identity. Pop psychology knows this, that's why there's self-help, self-love, self-esteem, self-actualization. Like it's all about self because you live out of your knowledge of self. The culture around us is consumed with self. It is my identity, my understanding, my being, my true self, without any reference to God. But the reality is that your identity is not based upon how you see yourself, but completely based upon how God sees you. This is very important. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. It says, "Cleanse out the old leaven." Leaven being a metaphor for sin. "Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened." For Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed. Like did you catch that? It says you don't have any leaven that you are unleavened, right? Meaning you are without sin. Why? How? Because of Christ's death. We are in our most essential, deepest places unleavened, that we are without sin. It's not there. It doesn't exist. And this is an incredible truth that we have to wrestle with because the unique thing about the saint is that we now fight against sin, against our sin, and we fight it because it's gone, which is really strange and a bit of a paradox when you're fighting something that doesn't exist, right? We must cleanse ourselves from sin because we are sinless. And when sin enters into our lives, we purge it because it doesn't belong. And why doesn't it belong? Because we're saints. Because we are not sinners. That's not who we are. You see, the fight against our ongoing sin is actually evidence that you are a saint. Satan wants to convince you that this fight against sin is proof that you are a sinner. But man, he's wrong. The fight against sin, the the very real, daily, knockout, drag down fight against sin, is actually evidence that you are a saint. If we would just live out of this identity, If you are in Christ, then you need to see yourself the way that God sees you, not the way that the enemy portrays you. You are a saint. And you belong in the family of God. And then our text continues as Paul thanks God for the people at Colossae. And so we're going to read verses 3 through 8. Verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made made known to us your love in the Spirit. So what we see here is that Paul is giving thanks to God for the people because the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. Now, to be fair, Paul had never actually met these people. He did not know the Colossians. This letter, as well as the letter to Rome, are the only letters that Paul wrote to people that he had never personally met. And so it's significant that in verse 7, we're introduced to a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras would have been the church planter in Colossae and the local pastor there. Apparently, He's giving this report to Paul that God is doing great things in Colossae and in the lives of the people there. They've heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They've been transformed by the gospel. And even though there's a threat of new things coming into the church, the Colossians are doing pretty good. And so Paul felt compelled to write a letter and say, Thanks be to God for you people. Now, remember what I said in the introduction. In this church, in the church in Colossae, there's a drifting off into newness. Not new in Christ, but new philosophies and new ideas. And because of this, the church needed to be reminded of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes them a letter. I think about it like this. Some of you are probably familiar with the buffet illustration, right? The idea is that some Christians treat following Jesus like going to a buffet. That, oh, I like this, and so I'll put some of that on my plate, but oh, I don't really like that, and so I'm going to leave that on the buffet, right? Like, it's the glory of a buffet. I only take that, what, that which I want, <laughs> And so these believers are saying, oh, I, I, I like this religion, but I don't really like these commandments, so I'm going to leave those on the buffet. Or I like this theology, so I'll take some of that, but I don't really like the mindset of serving one another, and so I'm going to leave that behind. I recently heard a pastor talking about a problem he's having in his church, and he said, he said this church is full of young men who just love theology. They're reading these like 700-page books all about theology. But when he goes to these young men, and he says, hey, will you please pick up this widow and bring them to church? They say, no, I don't have the time for that. They don't want to be inconvenienced to serve the body of Christ. And so this pastor, whether he's right or wrong, I don't know, But this pastor told these young men, you're not even a believer. You might love reading theology, but you're leaving a lot of stuff on the buffet line. They're getting second, third helpings of theology, but completely ignoring the part of Christianity that actually changes your life. You see, we're not that different from the Colossians. We create a Christian life that we like and it features the parts of the Bible that we enjoy and we leave everything else on the buffet line. And so in order to correct this, Paul emphasizes that Jesus is supreme, that he is the highest, he is the greatest, that Jesus is the most excellent, that he is the utmost and there is nothing better than Jesus And not only is he supreme over all things, but he is also sufficient. That Jesus is enough. Basically saying, if you go to the buffet and you put Jesus on your plate and you leave everything else on the buffet line, you will still be full and you will still be satisfied. And so Paul, he gets a good report from Epaphras. He says, there are definitely dangerous things new things coming into the church, but the people are doing pretty well. And so Paul takes this report and he thanks God for them and then he teaches them three signs of how the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. We're gonna call these three things signs of a saint because we're Southern Baptists, we have to. Signs of a saint, meaning if you really are a saint, you will have these three signs. And they're fairly easy. You've probably heard of them before. It's faith, hope, and love. Let's reread verses 4 to 5. It says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So we're going to start with faith because verse 4 speaks of the Colossians and their faith in Christ Jesus. So one of the signs that you are truly a saint is that you have a personal, intimate, deep faith in Jesus. And we can easily get this confused today because we tell people all of the time that they are a Christian. Right? You go to church, you're born into a Christian family, so you must be a saint. You stood up, you walked to the front during camp or during VBS, or maybe you repeated a prayer after a pastor, and so you must be a saint. Now, to be clear, none of those things are inherently wrong or bad, but they don't automatically make you a saint. It comes down to faith. Everything rests on this truth. We love Jesus. We follow Jesus. We believe in him. We serve him. We listen to Jesus, all because of our faith in Jesus. And if you have faith, then you are a saint. And if you don't, then you are a sinner. You desperately need to repent and put your faith in Jesus. Now get this, your faith has to be in Jesus. We live in a world that cares more about the sincerity of your faith than it does about the object of your faith. People are commended because they are devout and sincere and very well-meaning. And we support them and we give them our approval simply because, well, it seems to be real. They, they, they live out their faith, whatever it might be, they live it out with integrity. And so like, I, I want to give you my approval. But what if their faith is from the buffet line and they've left Jesus on the line? Right? What I'm saying is you may be very sincere and heartfelt in what you believe, but if that belief is in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ, it cannot save you. Like This is important. The only faith that can save you is a faith in a person that is capable of saving you. And that's Jesus. So here's the bad news. We all start off as sinners. We rebel against God by our very nature and by our choice. We disregard him, disobey him, and dishonor him. But God... Man, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the mission of Jesus, to die on our behalf so that we might go from sinner to saint. That he became a man and he lived a life that I cannot and that I have not lived, a life of perfection and complete holiness. And then he died a death that I deserve to die, the death that belongs to sinners. And then he rose from the grave, and in doing so, he gives me a gift that I do not deserve and I have not earned, the gift of salvation and eternal life. All because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I have access to the presence of God. I have access to the person of God. I have access to the peace of God of God. And all of this is exclusively and completely due to Jesus. We have to have our faith in this person, a person who is capable of saving, and that is only Christ. And through faith, his life is now your life. Do you know him? Are you abiding in him? Have you placed your life into his hands? Has he become your greatest treasure? If not, your faith is misplaced. No matter how sincere it may be, it's misplaced. And so the number one sign of a saint is that you have a deep and intimate faith in Jesus Christ. The second sign is hope. Verse 5 says, the hope laid up for you in heaven. That our hope is in heaven. And so we live with the end in mind. We know where we're going. As a saint, you have a reservation in heaven. Here's how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1.4, the passage that was read earlier, he says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then Hebrews says it like this in chapter 6. It'll be on the screen. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is to us, the, to, to the saints, the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. All right, hopefully you're tracking. It can be a little confusing. It's Hebrews after all. And then it says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek now I want you to get this image in your head as a believer you are tethered to an anchor right? Just like a large ship that has a a huge chain with links the size of your head, and on the other side of that chain is an anchor. You are tethered to an anchor, and that anchor has been tossed into the holy of holies. That is the inner place behind the curtain. And that anchor is hooked onto the throne of God, so that you are now anchored to to the throne of God. That is why the song Cornerstone says, my anchor holds within the veil, right? Brent's about to start singing right here. (laughs) All of that comes from Hebrews chapter six. And that is our hope. Our hope is that we are anchored to Jesus. Our future is secure because of Jesus. And without this anchor, there is no hope. If you're not anchored, you have no hope. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you will become paralyzed by fear because of the vast unknown that we call the future. Or you will assume all control Become the governor of your own life and do your best to determine your own future. Without hope, you either become paralyzed by fear or you assume command of your own life. And those two things will keep you from loving one another. Without hope, you cannot love one another. It's all connected in these two verses. Notice again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, that it says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, all right, so the Colossians are doing a good job loving each other, but but why? Because of verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have faith and you have love because of Hope. It's all connected. Hope is the birthplace of the self-sacrificing, self-denying love that we should have for one another. Because we just let God take care of us. My future is secure. I'm fine. I don't have to become preoccupied with myself. Instead, I can say, Lord, I want to be there for other people because I don't need to be there for myself. Like, are, are you tracking? If we rest in the hope that Jesus will take care of us and that our future is secure, then then and only then am I free to love other people because I don't have to spend all of my love on myself. And so the saint is willing to sacrifice themselves and deny themselves in the here and in the now because of the hope that is laid up in the future. Think about children. If you tell a kid to wait, or if you say, well, not right now, you might as well have just told them no. No. Like, no, no, absolutely not. Never and forever, no. Like, sometimes our kids will ask for candy. And the answer is, well, not right now. Maybe after dinner, you can have some candy. (sighs) Like, I might as well have told them, listen, because you asked for candy, we're throwing it all away. And you will never eat another ounce of sugar in your life. Like, I think that's what she heard of course, I'm exaggerating just a little, only a little. But children don't know how to connect their present with their future. Children can't really do that. But as a saint, because of our hope in Christ, we do connect our present with our future. We can say, Lord, I will deny myself Right here, right now, I will sacrifice my time, my energy. I will renounce worldly pleasures as long as I can have a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Let me give you another illustration and then we'll move on to love. Hebrews chapter 11 says that by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But being the son of Pharaoh's daughter would have been a really big deal. It would have come with a lot of perks. He would have been lavished with these extraordinary gifts and these extraordinary riches. Like Moses would have had it made not a care in the world. But he did not want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was willing to sacrifice the here and now for the future. And so he chose a life of hardship with the people of God rather than the pleasures that come along with being associated with Pharaoh. Like that is hope in action. Moses had hope. And so there are three signs of a saint. There is faith, there is hope, and the love, and then there is love. The third and final sign of a saint is love If you have a deep intimate faith in Jesus if your anchor if your hope is anchored within the veil then you will bear the fruit of love Notice that Paul has heard of their faith and their love The Colossians have a reputation for their faith and their love which means that love is it's a public thing And when we add verse 8 to our understanding We further understand that love is given to the saints by the Holy Spirit. And so the third sign of a saint is that they have spirit-filled love for one another. Now we know that we get our love from God, right? First John 419 says we love because he first loved us. And so our love comes from God. Why can we love one another? Because the Godhead loves one another. We get love from him. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. I can't fully explain the Trinity. Nobody can. But I know that there are three persons and one nature. Three in one. And I know that there is perfect love within the Godhead. And that through the Holy Spirit, we have access to that same love. As a saint, we have access to a never-ending flow of divine love. Our love comes from God. And so when God says, love your enemies, how do we? How? God they're my enemy. It's impossible unless God gives you the love that you need to love them, right? And then there's the story of the Good Samaritan that teaches us to love strangers. Well, I don't even know them. How am I supposed to love them? And God says, well, I love them and you have access to my love. So go and give them my love. God says to love One another. That the saints are supposed to love each other. And sometimes, I'd even argue most of the time, this is the hardest one. Like there's no hurt quite like church hurt. I've been a family pastor for seven years now. And when I counsel people through pain... Most of the time, okay, not all of the time, but most of the time, that pain was caused not by an enemy, not by a stranger, but that pain was caused by family, whether that be their spiritual family or their biological family. And so what is the answer to when somebody hurts you? What do we do when there's pain? Well, we love them. And love is a public thing. You see, whether or not you are the one who caused the pain or whether or not you are the one who has been hurt, you go and love the other person. And I'm not talking about, well, I decided in my bedroom by myself that I love you and it's all good. Love is a public thing. And so you go and you work it out together in love. Is it easy? No, it's not. But it's what you do as a saint. You see, love surpasses everything. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is bigger than our issues. In love, we can work through our our problems, our issues. Without love... We can never work through our problems. We can never work through our issues. That's why it's at the very beginning of of the book. Paul is going to get into some issues, but he first commends them for their love. And so, on a practical level, this means that we pray for one another, we're not overly critical of one another that we build one another up and we refuse to gossip and talk about each other behind one another's back. That we speak well of each other and that includes other churches and other saints who aren't in this room. We don't badmouth other churches. I like it's terrible when you hear about Christians fighting other Christians. I mean think about this from an outsider's perspective. You go up to them like, hey, hey, man, do you want to join the church? It's a lot of fun. We're just beating each other up in there. It's a great time. You want to end? We can beat you up too. (laughs) Who would want to be a part of that? You see, love, like Christ-like love will transform you. It will transform your family. It will transform this church. And as Jesus says, the world will see your good deeds and then they will give glory to your Father in heaven. I mean, the the early church, the early Christian church knew how to love and, and the world paid attention. The world did not marvel initially at the teachings of the church or even at the teachings of Jesus. The world marveled and took notice because of love. I'm going to finish with this, and so I invite Jason on it. The, the Colossian pastor, this guy named Epaphras, was simply telling people the truth about Jesus. He was just sharing the gospel, and that began to excite people. It began to awaken them out of their hopeless state. The Colossians found hope, and in finding hope, they also found faith and love, and a healed community of beautiful people came into being, and it caught the attention of the surrounding world. It would seem as if this is God's preferred method of evangelism. Like, we have good preaching in this church. And we've had good preaching for a really, really long time. And so perhaps some of you have fallen into the trap that you cannot be used by God because, well, you just don't know the Bible, or, or you don't know the Bible as well as the pastor knows the Bible, That's not true. God wants to use each and every one of you. You are the true evangelist. Evangelism requires love. And you are out there rubbing shoulders with people who have no hope. You hear their sad stories. You meet them in the stores you have coffee with them. You, you are the ones who can spread the word of hope. That's how Christianity grew in the early world. It was through the saints loving one another and sharing their newfound hope. The gospel had power to change people back then, and the gospel has power to change people now. It has the power to awaken, and it has the power to give hope, and out of hope springs forth faith and love. It's a remarkable thing. Independence, Kansas is our corner of the world, and we too can see the very same things happening in our town, those happening in Colossae? Like what excitement will come into your life when you reach out with the gospel to the hopeless people around you? Like what excitement will come into your life when you love one another? Will we do that? Will we love one another and will we spread the gospel? I want to imitate Paul and I want to pray and give thanks to God for you. And then after that, Stephen's going to come up and he's going to lead us in taking the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for Jesus. God, we do not want to be a uh, buffet Christian so to speak God we want to live out everything that you taught we want to live this relationship that we have for you we want to live out our faith and our hope and our love so God when our faith is weak when we've got these doubts when we've got these insecurities that we wrestle with God I pray that you will strengthen us you will make it evident that our relationship with you is real and it's beautiful and it's making a difference God give us hope steadfast hope life is so hard and it's so difficult in moments that if we did not know that we're anchored to Jesus we would be lost lost in the pain, lost in the confusion, feeling like we're just going through the motions, floating through space. God, remind us of the reality that we are tethered to Jesus Christ. God, help us to love, to truly love one another, to sacrifice ourselves, to deny ourselves, to go out of our way, to be inconvenienced, in order to love one another. God, may our love be on full display. Not, not so that we may boast, but so that we can point to Jesus, we can point to the Father, we can point to the gospel. God, we love you. God, we pray that your kingdom will come in independence as it is in heaven in we pray. Amen.